All right. Well, let me invite you now to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 7 as we continue our journey through this gospel, Luke chapter 7. Um, as you guys are finding your way to Luke chapter 7 and we continue our study of this gospel, there's a, uh, uh, I've, been, I've had the privilege in recent months of coaching my son's uh, T-ball coaches pitch baseball team. It's a group of about six, seven, and eight-year-olds that I have the joy of coaching and playing baseball with a couple of times a week. And we had our first game yesterday, and and it went fantastic. I had a lot of fun. Uh, but the kids, some of the kids are new to the game, and they're just now learning the game, and they're trying to figure out how to fit in with kind of the rules and the boundaries of the game. And I had a kid named Ivan playing first base, and and Ivan's a fun guy. He just laid back just loose and just loves to have fun. And, and so I put him at first base for one inning. And, and there were a couple of batters that hit for the other team, and they started running to first base. But Ivan thought his job was to stand in front of first base and to provide a barrier for the runner so that the runner couldn't get to the, to the base. And so that caused a couple of collisions, and it wasn't pretty. And the coach for the other team who was at first base was getting a little frustrated, and he was, like, trying to get Ivan to get, off, get out of the line and not to be in the way in that, in that way. And then finally I walked over there to Ivan, and I, grabbed, and I got down and said, Ivan, you know you can't position yourself like that. You can't stand in front of the base in the line because that runner's coming full speed and he's going to bowl you over if you're not careful. And Ivan said, but coach, I'm strong. I said, you are strong. You are strong, Ivan, but you're not as strong as the game. And the game requires you to step aside and to put your foot on this bag and to reach out. And the reason for that is because you have a team that you're a part of. And that ball is being hit to your teammates. And some of your teammates are going to make a great catch. And they're going to make a great throw. And you need to be ready to catch it. But if you're being bowled over by the runner, you're not going to be a catch it, able to catch it. And we're not going to be able to do what we hope to do as a team. And so I said, Ivan, you've got you've to come over here and put your foot here and hold out your glove in this direction so that we can do the things that we're supposed to do. So that we can play the game in a way that would allow everyone to be a part of it and allow the whole team to contribute to what's going on. Now, I'll share that with you this morning because we're looking at a passage where I think there's a sense in which we have a tendency and a temptation in our relationship with Jesus to try to play that game, so to speak, our own way. We kind of bring our own rules to the equation and we decide how we want to handle a given moment, how we want to handle our lives, how we want to handle uh, what it means to navigate through this world. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves in the wrong position. And rather than uh, being a part of something special that contributes to other people's blessing and joy, we might find ourselves being bowled over by the competition as we provide an unnecessary barrier to what's happening in that moment. And so here in Luke chapter 7, what I want to do is I want to look at a story that concerns really uh, John the Baptist and his interaction with his cousin, Jesus, who is the Messiah. And, and I want to help us identify a few barriers that we're putting up that might be prohibiting the blessing of Jesus from flowing into our lives and the blessing of Jesus from flowing through our lives to the lives of those around us as we are a part of a much bigger picture than just our own individual selves. And so let's look at the passage beginning in verse 18 of chapter 7. I'm just going to read the whole thing and then I want to walk back through it identifying a few of these barriers. Beginning of verse 18 we read that then John's disciples told him about all of these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men 
asked him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. After John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in clothes, in soft clothes? See, those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, here's the saddest verse, I believe, in all of the scriptures, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. To what then should I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a lament, and yet you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. So the key verse I want to call your attention there is at the end of verse 23 where it says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who isn't offended by what Jesus has come to say and what Jesus has come to do. That the blessing of God flows to those who aren't offended by him. But there are a few things in our lives that risk being offended by Jesus that if we're not careful, we're going to miss out on the blessing of Jesus flowing freely and fully into our lives and through our lives. And so these barriers, so to speak, are barriers that we want to surrender. We want to blow up. We want to tear down. And the first barrier is the barrier of expectations. There's the barrier of expectations that might prohibit the blessing of Jesus from flowing into our lives. And we see this in John's situation. At this point in time, John the Baptist is in prison. He has spoken out against Herod and his illicit marriage. He's spoken out against how Herod's lifestyle did not sink in with the ethical standards of God's word and of God's kingdom. And as a result, John the Baptist was put in prison. And he's there waiting trial. And soon, we know the rest of the story, John's head will be detached from his body. He will be killed. He will be beheaded. But as he's sitting in prison waiting for that verdict to fall and just kind of waiting for his fate to to be sealed he's given time to reflect and he's thinking about his life he's thinking about his ministry he's thinking about how he got to where he is right now and this time of reflection has perhaps unsettled him a little bit and so he wants some reassurance he wants to know if he's given his life to the right person he wants to know if he's giving his life for the right reasons And so he has some disciples, some 
folks who were devoted to him, and he calls some of his followers to him. He says, okay, I need you to go and ask this Jesus. I need you to ask him if he really is the Messiah or if we should expect someone else. And so this lack of assurance seems to flow up from these expectations that weren't necessarily being met. And we think about this because earlier Jesus did declare himself to be the Messiah. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus preached his first sermon, and in so doing, he opened up Isaiah 61, and he said that he has come to fulfill that prophetic passage, to do the things that the Messiah promises to do. And listen to what he said he would do. And these, this passage kind of set John the Baptist's expectations. And so listen to what he says. Says Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's what Jesus said he was here to do. Now think about John's trajectory. When Jesus first started preaching and teaching, where was John? Well, John was in the wilderness freely serving the Lord. But now, where is he? Now he's in captivity. So Jesus said, I'm the Messiah who's come to set captives free, and now my very cousin is in prison. He is a captive. It seems like John's life has been turned upside down. He was at one time free. Now he is a captive. Jesus said he was going to set the captives free. What's going on? So John the Baptist has all these questions popping up in his mind, and he needs some reassurance because his expectations aren't being met in the way, perhaps, that he thought. Perhaps he thought that the Messiah would bring in his kingdom completely right off the bat. And there would be no such thing as captivity for God's people. No more sickness, no more suffering, no more struggle, no more uh, wrestling with life in a fallen world. That Jesus the Messiah, whoever the Messiah would be, would set all of that right. And so his expectations aren't lining up with his experiences. And as a result, he's grown disillusioned. That's kind of how the process works. You know, when we carry expectations into a certain situation, and then our experience in that situation doesn't match those expectations, we grow disillusioned. I learned this because I've been to the Red Lobster before. And uh, the Red Lobster has something on an annual basis called Seafood Fest. And the commercials are great. They set high expectations. You watch the commercials in high def, and you see all these incredible plates of food being presented. You, you see a crab leg being cracked open and luscious crab meat just kind of blossoming and blooming out of the shell. It whets your appetite, and you think, okay, if I, go, if I go to the Red Lobster, that's what my experience is going to be. But then you go to the Red Lobster, and all of a sudden, that crab leg isn't cracking and meat just blossoming out of it. Instead, you're kind of tearing it open. And that's not how crabs should be. You shouldn't have to tear the shell. You should just crack the shell, right, Alaskans? Uh, You want to crack the shell. And then the crab meat doesn't just blossom out of the shell. The crab meat just kind of falls out of it in this dry capacity. And in that moment, you have this, you struggle with some disillusionment because you had one expectation and your experience isn't lining up with that and it's wrecking everything. Well, I wonder if this isn't the experience many of us have when we step into relationship with Jesus. We hear his promises, we hear what he says he's going to do, and we come in, we put our faith in Jesus, and we start expecting life to to go a certain way, but then we experience things that don't seem to line up with that expectation. And if we're not careful, we risk growing disillusioned, and we start lacking assurance. Well, did we really give our lives to the right person? Are we really living our lives for the right purpose? This is what's driving John the Baptist to, to ask this question of Jesus, and 
when he gets to Jesus, when his disciples go to Jesus and ask him these questions, notice what Jesus does. Jesus begins to kind of validate his identity as the Messiah by doing the types of things that the Messiah alone can do. It says that Jesus started healing people of diseases, afflictions. He started casting out demons. He started granting sight to many blind people. And then he says to the disciples, now go and tell John that the Messiah is here and that the Messiah is doing work. And so they go and they start telling John the, telling John the Baptist about all that Jesus is doing, saying Jesus really is the Messiah. However, however, we have to think about whether or not we allow, well, we have to think about the nature of the kingdom of God at this point. That they're to go back and to tell to John that John got it right, that Jesus is the Messiah, that the kingdom of God has come. But here's the deal. The kingdom of God is still coming. That the kingdom of God is like a seed that you plant in the ground. And then it takes some time for that seed to bust up and to interact with the nutrients of the soil and for water and sunlight to be shed upon the ground so that that seed can bear fruit and a plant can grow. The kingdom of God is a lot like that. Yes, the kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus, but the kingdom of God is still coming. And so people like John and people like you and people like me, we have to exercise patience and make sure that we are filling up our expectations with the stuff of biblical explanations. Because we want our expectations to be informed with what the scriptures teach about what life is like in the kingdom of God now and what life will be like when all is said and done. And we fill up our expectations with those realities. And then we're suddenly guarded against growing disillusioned. But we have to get to a point in our lives where we are no longer offended when the expectations we impose upon Jesus and we impose upon his kingdom when our expectations aren't met, when Jesus isn't operating according to our timetable, when Jesus isn't operating according to our preferences, when Jesus isn't doing the things immediately that we think he should do immediately, rather than growing disillusioned, when we have those experiences, we want to recalibrate and find reassurance by coming back to the scriptures and paying attention, paying attention to what Jesus says about his kingdom and how it is much like a seed being planted in the ground that will grow gradually over time. And so when Jesus is setting captives free and he's engaging the deep stuff of life by capturing people's hearts, he's showcasing what life in the kingdom will all is said and Done, And he's assuring people like John the Baptist who is suffering, whose future in this life isn't secure. He's assuring him that what is true right now won't be true forever. And this is the faith we live by. So whenever there is something going on in our lives that doesn't seem to match up with the beauty of the kingdom of God as it's described in the ministry of Jesus, what do we do in those moments? Well, we are reminded that what is true right now won't be true forever. The kingdom of God has come, and the kingdom of God is still coming. So we exercise faith, and we show some patience, and we adjust our expectations accordingly. Because we don't want our expectations to serve as a barrier to the blessing of Jesus from flowing freely and fully into our lives. What happens then is we get in these situations where we can't even see what Jesus is actually doing 
because we have this barrier of expectation that's prohibiting us from seeing all the, that Jesus is doing that is good and that is wise and that is courteous of, of his work in our lives and what's good for our souls. And, and so we want to tear down our expectations, surrender them to what Jesus teaches about the nature of his kingdom. And so this is what Jesus does. He assures John's disciples that he is the Messiah, and he tells them to go and tell John, look, he hasn't gotten it wrong. Hang in there. My kingdom has come, and it's still coming. But then he turns to the crowd after that, and he begins to talk to the crowd about why they went to the wilderness. He asked everyone there, why have you come out to, why did you go out into the wilderness to listen to John? Did you go out there to see a reed that was swaying in the wind or to see a man dressed in soft clothes? And the implication of this question was that they went out into the wilderness to see something different. They caught wind of this prophet named John doing weird things in the woods, and they wanted to go and kind of see what was going on because perhaps they had grown uh, frustrated with the powers that be at the temple or at the synagogue, and they needed something new, something fresh. And so they went out to see someone who was different. They didn't go out into the wilderness to see a complete person. Went out of the wilderness to see a contrarian personality, someone who was standing against in stark contrast with all that was familiar to the people at the temple and the synagogue and other places. And Jesus assures them, says, and believe it or not, the guy that you went out into the woods to see who's dressed in camel's skin and eating locusts and honey, that, that weird woodsman, he's, he's actually someone very important in the kingdom of God. He's actually the forerunner of the Messiah. This is what Jesus is getting after in verse 27 when he quotes from Malachi chapter 3 saying, this is the one that this prophet spoke, this passage anticipated. He's saying John the Baptist is the messenger. He is the one who prepared the way for the Lord's arrival. And then he goes on to say, and this guy, believe it or not, is actually greater than any, everyone else here. He says that this guy John is the greatest, no one born of woman is greater than him. And that's surprising for them to hear because they're not looking at someone who is wealthy. They're not looking at someone who has high social standard and status. They're looking at someone who's an outsider. They're looking at someone who's kind of weird. But Jesus says, look, no one born of a woman is greater than this guy. What made John the Baptist great? Well, it wasn't his wealth. It wasn't his position in society. What made John the Baptist great was his proximity to the kingdom of God. And this is the expectation that Jesus is setting for everyone he's talking to, saying, look, you guys tended to find greatness according to power. But in my kingdom, greatness is about proximity. It's about where you sit in relation to the kingdom of God. Do you sit in the kingdom or do you sit out of the kingdom? Do you sit in the kingdom or do you sit somewhere else? This is what Jesus is getting after. He's saying John is great because of his proximity. John is the hinge on the door into the kingdom of God. He's a transitional figure ushering in a new era, pointing people to the Messiah quite literally. He was the last of the prophets coming from the Old Testament pattern and paradigm. And he's now pointing to Jesus saying, this is the one who is to come. So greatness in the kingdom of God isn't about power. It's not about wealth, not about status. It's about proximity. This is why Jesus would go on to say, that the least in the kingdom of God is even greater than John. Why is that? Because people like you and I share a different proximity. We're not just like getting people ready for the kingdom of God's arrival. You and I actually sit in the kingdom right now. We share that proximity together, and that's where greatness is found. 
This is why we embody and express the ethics of the kingdom of God, regardless of whether or not it gains us an advantage in the world that is. We express and embody the ethics of the kingdom of God because that's where greatness is found. And so we hear this and we, we surrender then any expectation we have that goes against that. Any expectation about what it means to be great, any expectation about what it means to be powerful, any expectation about what Jesus should be like and how he should operate in our lives or in the world around us, we surrender all of that. Blessed is he who is not offended by Jesus. Blessed is he who surrenders all of their expectations to Jesus. There's this I want you to consider, and that's the barrier of personality. Barrier of personality. As you keep reading through the passage, you get to this moment where There are people, including the tax collectors, who hear what Jesus is saying and they start acknowledging God's way of righteousness. They start saying, okay, God is right. We are wrong. We're going to listen to him and do what he says. And they start responding positively. But then there are Pharisees and experts in the law who don't. And instead, they reject the plan of God for themselves. See, the plan of God is for every person to surrender their lives to Jesus every person to surrender their lives to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But there are two personality types that find it difficult to do so. Two exaggerated personalities that if we're not careful, they're going to prohibit us from surrendering our lives to Jesus and being blessed as members of his kingdom. The first personality type is the overly compliant. There are some people who are overly compliant And here's what I mean by that. The Pharisees and the experts experts of the law had not been baptized by John. They opposed John much like they opposed Jesus. Both John and Jesus threatened to disrupt their positions in society. You see, Rome ruled the the area. Rome was the government in charge. But the Pharisees and the experts of the law, they did enjoy a little bit of autonomy as long as they complied with Roman rule and as long as they complied with certain things that Rome would do. And this autonomy allowed the Pharisees and the experts of the law to accumulate much wealth and to accumulate much status. So over time, they overly complied with Roman rule because that's where they were comfortable. That's what allowed them to accumulate so much wealth and status. And that's what they didn't like about John the Baptist. And that's what they didn't like about Jesus. Both John and Jesus represented a different way. John and Jesus stood in contrast with their way of life and their relationship with Rome. This is why in John chapter 12, verse 48, we're told of their motivation of why they wanted to kill Jesus. They said to themselves, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Pharisees and the experts of the law missed out on the blessing of the kingdom of God because they were overly compliant with the culture around them. They were overly compliant to the point of their own comfort and their own wealth and their own status. And I can't help but wonder if there's a, that's a similar reason why some of us are missing out on the blessing of Jesus right now. I can't help but wonder if some of you are overly compliant with the culture around you. This is why you only say and do what the powers that be tell you to say and do, regardless of what Jesus says and regardless of what his word teaches. 
You get into a rhythm where you see certain things being normalized in the culture around you, and you assume that just because they are normal everywhere else, they must be normal in the kingdom of God. But again, we have to check that expectation. There are many things that are normalized in society and in culture that are abnormal in the kingdom. And so what do we do as followers of Jesus? We surrender our expectations and we surrender our overly compliant personalities. It says, look, I'm not just going to live my life in a way that promotes my own comfort in the world around me. I'm going to speak up. I'm going to speak out. I'm going to embody an ethic that corresponds with the kingdom of God in every area of life. And if that means I grow uncomfortable in my culture or uncomfortable in my society, so be it. John the Baptist wasn't an overly compliant personality. That's why he landed in prison. He spoke up, he spoke out. He embodied a different ethic, and he got killed for it. But he believed Jesus and the kingdom of God was worth it. And I'm wondering if you and I believe Jesus and the kingdom of God is worth it so that we are willing to be a different kind of people, that we would embody a different kind of ethic that we would allow the kingdom of God and the way of God to shape how we view life in every category. And if that ever results in you and I being out of line and out of step with the world around us, so be it. Because we surrender our personalities. We don't allow the barrier of being overly compliant to prevent us from being blessed by Jesus. But then the flip side of that, There's the overly compliant types, and then there are the constant contrarian types. The constant contrarian types who are also missing out on the blessing of Jesus because, again, this is kind of like John. John was a type of contrarian. He contradicted the way of righteousness that was preferred and touted by the religious establishment. And as a result, I think this is why John attracted a large following. Contrarians tend to attract contrarians. And not every person who came to John to be baptized by him did so because they liked what he was saying about Jesus. They did so because they liked his style. They liked the fact that this John the Baptist was an outsider who bucked the status quo, that he was a type of rebel. And so they came to him because their personalities perhaps jived with that. And so they flocked to this contrarian because they themselves were contrarians. This is why Even after John died and even after Jesus was crucified and risen, there were still people more devoted to John than they were to Jesus. Perhaps they were the constant contrarian type who did not want to conform to what Jesus said they needed to conform to. They did not want to comply with the reality and the rhythms of the kingdom of God. This is why when you get all the way to the book of Acts chapter 19, there's a group of people who still haven't believed that Jesus is the Messiah still being more devoted to John and what John said and did and taught and those types of things. So in Acts chapter 19, you have this passage where Paul asks, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. In other words, he's saying, that's great, but you've stopped. John's baptism was designed to point you in Jesus' direction. And until you move in Jesus' direction, you're cut off from the blessing that Jesus wants to bring into your life. And so you have overly compliant people. Then you have constant contrarian types. And I'm wondering if some of you might identify as a constant contrarian. Meaning you pride yourself in always being on the other side of every issue. 
You pride yourself in being the outsider or the rebel. And that attitude, that mentality, that orientation prevents you perhaps from having the blessing of Jesus flowing freely and fully into your life. And here's one area where I see it the most as most common. The constant contrarians never commit to anyone or to anything. Constant contrarians always see themselves as unique and as the outsider and everyone else who's doing the same thing or just kind of weird and they're not a part of that. The constant contrarian never commits to a local church. The constant contrarian sees themselves as an individual and not as part of a people. The constant contrarian is always on the outside looking in, never really a part of what's going on inside a community or inside a people. And one of the most remarkable descriptions of the Christian identity and most neglected descriptions of the Christian identity is found in 1 Corinthians when you are described as a member of the body of Christ. That that's essential to the Christian identity. If you are a Christian, that is who you are. And being a member of the body of Christ means that that identity should show up in some tangible way. And the most tangible way where that identity shows up should be in a local church. A tangible community of flesh and blood, sinners and sufferers, all being saved by grace through faith in Jesus. This is who we are together. That means being a part of Jesus' people isn't an elective like in school that you can take or leave. Being a part of Jesus' people is essential to your identity. And when you refuse to step into that identity and to be a part of a people and not just living as a person or an individual, as you refuse to do that, what happens? Well, you cut yourself off from the blessing that those people are to be to you, and you cut them off from the blessing you are to be for them. This is what it means to be members of the body of Christ together as we lean in and we share life together, when we grow in relationship with Jesus together, we find the blessing of Jesus flowing freely and fully among us, recognizing that Jesus didn't die for an individual. He died for a community. He didn't die for a person. He died for a people. And you and I are a part of that people. So if you are a constant contrarian, that's something you have to check so that you might experience everything that Jesus wants to do in your life. And then the third barrier I want to put before you is the barrier of control. You really see this in the last stretch of the passage when Jesus kind of quotes a poem. He drops a, a lyric down and he starts comparing this generation to the type of people who say to the Lord, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. The imagery there is one of manipulation. It's one of control. And Jesus is saying, look, if that's if that's the role you think you have, if your role is telling me what to do and how to do it, you're going to miss out on the blessing I have for you. If you're offended by the fact that I'm saying you, you have to drop the flute and stop singing that song because I'm the one who sets the agenda in your life and I'm the one who sets the agenda in the kingdom. If you're offended by that, you're going to not be, you, you will miss out on my blessing. So not only do we surrender aspects of our expectations and surrender aspects of our personalities. We surrender our desire for control, to call the shots, to be the king. Jesus is reminding people, as all through his life, that he is the only, there's only one king in the kingdom of God, and it's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. So he sets the agenda. He calls the shots. But he says, look, but some of you are so afraid of surrendering control that you are going to look for every excuse not to give it up. So he says, some of you look at John the Baptist and call him 
demon-possessed. But then you have the exact opposite of John the Baptist and Jesus, who wasn't a loner living out in the wilderness doing his ministry. Jesus was walking through towns and cities, engaging people around the table, fellowshipping and communing with people on their turf and on their terms, so to speak. And you had the exact opposite in Jesus, who came eating and drinking, and yet you call him a glutton and a drunkard. He's saying, so you, you can't win because you're looking for every excuse not to surrender your life to Jesus. And the barrier that's blocking the blessing of Jesus from flowing into your life is this barrier of control. You don't want to surrender it. But the challenge of the story is that you can't enter the kingdom of God without doing so. You can't receive the blessing of Jesus without surrendering. And you say, what are you supposed to surrender? Surrender everything. Expectations, personality preferences, a desire for control and to call the shots, surrender it all. That's where the blessing of Jesus falls on people. It's in that posture of surrender. This is what he's getting after when he says that wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. You know, wisdom knows when to surrender. Wisdom is willing to remove any barrier to the blessing of Jesus. If it's proclivities in my personality, fine, I must drop it. If it's expectations that aren't filled out with biblical explanations, I'm going to drop it. If it's a desire to be in control of my life and to call the shots, I'm going to drop it. That's wisdom. Wisdom is willing to remove any barrier to the blessing of Jesus. And one of the most fascinating things about the wisdom of God is that the wisdom of God is most clearly demonstrated through the cross of Christ. And the reason why you and I might want to take on this type of wisdom and know when to surrender is because we look to the cross and there we find the wisdom of God because the wisdom of God contradicts everyone's expectations. Nobody expected the Messiah to be crucified on the cross and to rise from the grave in the middle of human history. They just assumed and expected God would set everything right at once in a moment, in a flash of lightning, so to speak. But the kingdom of God moves differently. It's gradual. It's procedural. And it required Jesus first coming in, being crucified, and rising from the grave as the first fruits of the kingdom to establish that. And then you look to the cross and you find the reason why you should be willing to surrender your personality. You don't want to be overly compliant with a culture that would crucify Christ. You want to drop that, ex- you want to drop that aspect of your personality and recognize, well, if giving my life to Jesus means that I'm going to be crucified too, so be it. I'm going to I'm not going to be so overly compliant that I avoid that for the sake of my own comfort. I'm going to trust Jesus through it because that's what Jesus endured for me. It also means that I'm going to surrender any aspect of being a contrarian, a contrarian, because I'm going to look to Jesus and recognize that his crucifixion and resurrection wasn't just for an individual, but for a community. It wasn't just for a person, but a people. And so I'm going to surrender to that reality and take up my place in the body of Christ. And I'm also going to surrender any aspect of control that I desire. Because if God would demonstrate his love for me by doing that, I can trust him with whatever else is going on in my life. I can trust him with controlling my agenda, my rhythms, my health, everything. Trusting Jesus, surrendering control, that's where the blessing of God, that's when and how the blessing of God falls. So if you're having trouble surrendering any aspect of your life to Jesus today, I would encourage you to look to the cross and consider the wisdom of God that is displayed there. And one of the ways I want to encourage you to do so over the next few moments by partaking in the Lord's Supper 
You receive these elements on the way in that remind us of the body of Jesus that was given for us and the fruit of the vine that reminds us of the blood of Jesus shed for our forgiveness, that this is how Jesus would secure his kingdom in the world. And because of these, this dynamic, we know that Jesus will one day come back and settle his kingdom once and for all. In the meantime, we just constantly practice surrender, just surrendering and resurrendering our lives over and over and over again and fixing our eyes on the crucified and risen Christ so that we might be wise to do so. So over these next few moments, I just want to open up the table for anyone who is a follower of Jesus to partake of the elements that you have at your own pace. But before you do so, I just want to encourage you to reflect and to think about whether or not there are any areas of your life that you have not yet surrendered or that you are not surrendering currently. And that's as the Holy Spirit might bring some of that stuff to mind. Confess that, surrender it, and then partake of the meal that's designed to encourage you to do so. The body of Christ given for you, the blood of Jesus shed for you. Partake of that at your own pace with thanksgiving in your hearts. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace and the goodness that you have shown us in Jesus. We thank you for the wisdom of the cross, and I pray that we would find wisdom there. Help us to be wise people who know when to surrender. Help us to be wise people who know what needs to be surrendered. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and would you lead us in that direction, all in the name of Jesus. Amen.